<laughs> I want to tell you, last week uh, on Wednesday, I had a new and, uh, and different experience. I went to the racetrack, and I'd never been to a racetrack before. I went down to Garden State Raceway, right, Garden State Parkway, because I'd seen all the ads, you know, with the cat standing on the grass going, they never walk on this grass, they run. <laughs> and the guy goes, Garden State Raceway, now through May 31st. And then they cut to an ad for Ban or something. So, um, you know, I was up for it. We were originally going to go to Atlantic City, but uh, we got screwed around, so we wound up at Garden State. And I don't know, for those of you who are not familiar with racetracks, I will explain them to you. They are this. The state passes a law which says gambling is illegal. Then some smart, business-like mind in state government suddenly realizes that gambling may indeed be illegal, but it is tremendously profitable for anybody who is involved, except the better. So state government suddenly decides what they really want to do is run a series of racetracks because they'll make a tremendous pile of bread. But they can't very well run racetracks and still say gambling is illegal. So they invented a marvelous word. And the word is paramutual. Now paramutual means somewhat democratic. You know, it's, it's sort of for the benefit of all, but not really. It's only indirectly for the benefit of all, in that it benefits the state, you see. So, paramutual racetracks spring up all over, operated by the state. The state is the bookie here. And, uh, and, and they're the ones who, the little men who are sitting behind the counters taking your measly $2 to put on number six in the fifth race that's coming in on rubber wheels. Those people are state employees. They work for the state. They get paid by the state. They're laid off by the state. They work entirely for the government. And the object of the game is, what they do is they give out welfare checks to people, see, and then they set up racetracks to get it all back, because all of the people, you know, go down and, and, and bet it all, see. Now, in Omaha, it's a little different. In Omaha, we only have one racetrack, and that is Aksarben, which is Nebraska spelled backwards. How quaint is that? And it is run by Aksarben, which is a nonprofit corporation, but it has the sanction of the state and is therefore paramutual. But it's all the same. It relies on an age-old human quirk that will never, no matter how advanced society gets, will never die. And that is the insane burning desire to get something for nothing. It's in all of us, friends. Maybe you hide it well, but it's there, lurking, crouching, in the back of your mind with its little greased mustache waiting to spring that little trap door and go. And pretty soon, if you've been suppressing it all these years, pretty soon you're, it's going to pop out and you're going to wind up going to a racetrack. And you can come up with the greatest excuses. You know, somebody, when we planned this trip, the guy came up to me and said, well, um, listen, we'll go down to Garden State and we'll have a great time, right? It'll be a lot of yucks. And I said to myself, I said out loud, I didn't say to myself, I said out loud, yeah, that's true, boy. Going down the racetrack, you know, you can, you can really have a lot of fun. It'll be out in the sun, out in the warm air, and gee, it'll be a whole lot of fun. And my voice was going, if you win, you could be very rich. There are many dollars to be had. So I'm up for it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm getting psyched. And I've never been at a racetrack. I know nothing about horses. I know, the only thing I know about horses 
is how to ride them. I sort of know how to ride. And that's something that you, uh, that you pick up in Nebraska because they teach you how to ride before you can walk anyway. So we go, right? We pile in the car. Everybody is there, you know, guys from the club. And we get down to Garden State Raceway. That's about 5,000 miles, you know, and there's signs 500 miles on either side. 20 minutes to Garden State Raceway where if you bet $2, you may be able to win. And then again, you may lose. So, we get down there, and Garden State Raceway is beautiful. It's a gigantic monument to man's greed standing there in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, or wherever it is. It's not Cherry. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's, I don't know the name of the town. But it's a magnificent, shining, well-scrubbed, white-painted, artistic monument to man's greedy side. And it's got fantastically sprawling parking lots for billions of greedy cars bearing greedy people. Just pack them in. And it's got this huge stadium, you know, with all of the, the, the fancy frills. You see, here's the, this is the beautiful part. They provide the rationalization for you. Because they're all around the raceway are these little traditional things like the guy in the red coat that comes out and, and, and uh, blows the trumpet beforehand, you know, all that bit, you know. And you can sit up there in the $5 seats munching on your cracked crab and saying, oh, yes, all of we continental come to the races. We have the, we have the jet set. We come to the races now and again to see how the poor people live. Uh, by the way, put $2 on number six. You can kid yourself. It's all there. So we get in, and it costs you $2.10 to get in. I've never seen any place like this. Usually what they do is the admission is $1.90, and then it's $0.10 cents tax, so the total thing is $2. They don't do that at Garden State. No way they let you get away with even that dime. So they charge you the standard $2 admission and then $0.10 cents tax. It all goes to the state, but they're charging you tax. What a, what a tremendous con job. Whoever set this up, whoever is in state government, shouldn't be in state government. He should be on 33rd Street and 3rd Avenue pitching pennies. I don't know. This guy can make a fortune. He must be beautiful. So you get in there, you know, and, it's, and the place is, is carpeted with old paramutual tickets. Right? It's just literally, they're all over everywhere. God, and they're always torn. You know, because the guy goes, the standard thing is you go, oh, no, it didn't win, and rip it up and throw it, the two halves in different directions. And they're win place and show tickets all over in this fantastic... Uh, uh, carpet-like thing all over the floor. It's a concrete floor, you know, no, no big deal. So it's kind of a cushion of these things. You're kind of bouncing as you walk, sinking into these thousands of broken lives on the floor. So you walk up this ramp, right, and there's the track, and it's beautiful. It's all landscaped, and it's, you know, oval, beautiful, well-kept track, and there are flags all over everywhere, and there's the guy in the, in the, in the pressed lint jacket blowing the bugle, you know, and, and he's all set to go. And there are thousands of people packed in in three tiers, see. There's the, at the top tier are the guys, the continental types, who are eating while they're watching, who are really kidding themselves. The second tier is people who are basically kidding themselves, and ba about half, maybe, not kidding themselves at all, knowing they're greedy, but just want to sit down while they're being greedy. And the bottom tier is where the real hardcore is. That's where I am, see. Down in the bottom with all the guys standing, just standing on concrete, so you can be right up next to the rail, so you can yell at the jockey if he's a real bum, you know. It's like I was talking about R.D., Rusty Davis, a couple of weeks ago, about you know, when you go to the ball game, half the fun is yelling, be tough in their mirth. So when you go to a racetrack, half the fun is yelling, come on, Wood Romer, you know, stuff like that. 
So I'm down in this section, right? I'm down right with the hardcore. Nobody's kidding themselves down here. Everybody knows just what they are. No pretensions. Occasionally you get a guy who comes down to see how the other third lives. But basically there's no pretensions down here. Nobody speaks to anybody else. It's just that burning concentration on the racing form. So now we go back into the main building, which is an incredible sight because it's like five million theater ticket windows. And every bet has a separate window. $2 win, $2 place, $2 show, $5 win, $5 place, and so on. $10, $50, $100. And there are all these thousands of guys with these thousands of machines, you know. And, and the little buttons, 1 through 10, 1 through 15, to press out your life as you hand over $2. Well, now, I don't know anything about all this. See, I'm a tender young newcomer, a novice to this unschooled in the evil ways of this sort of thing. So I figure the first thing i got to do, this is a sport, and when you're seeing a sport live, the first thing you do with any sport is buy a program. So I corner a guy who's hawking programs with a little Newsweek change apron on, and, uh, and I grab him, and they're 25 cents, and he wants to sell me a pencil for a dime, but for a dime, you know, I'll use my fingernail and blood. So, uh, <laughs> so I got the program, right? Now the program lists all of the horses in each race, it lists the length of the race, and it gives you picks. See, some guy sits back there and, and, and tells you who's coming in on rubber wheels, right? Who the big ones, who the big ones are for this race. But immediately that makes me a little suspicious because the object of these people's game is to make a profit. They don't want to give you the pick. They don't want to give you, if they gave everybody the winner and everybody bet on the winner, the state would go home broke and everybody else would live it up, and that can't happen. So I'm immediately a little suspicious, but I brought along my old friend, the Philadelphia Bulletin. Philadelphia Bulletin has a complete racing form in it every day for the avid fan, right? You can always tell, you can tell an awful lot about a person by looking at what page of the newspaper he turns to first. Now, me, it's the comic section. See, immediately you can tell what kind of a clown I am. But you can always tell, you know, the guy who turns to the financial section first, there's a guy who turns to the sports section first, and uh, then there's a guy, the guy who turns to the racing form first. Of course, the guy, when you get along in life, it's always the abits. First page you turn to is the obituary to see how many of your friends have, have died. And that's, you know, a tragic thing. I hope I never get there. I'll be reading Dick Tracy until I die. So, I got the bulletin in my pocket. And the first, the first, second, and third races we have missed. See, we didn't get there at post time. So we've missed the first, second, and third race, including, I might point out, a horse in the third race named Tiger Coed. Now, you know I would have bet the ranch on Tiger Coed, and she won. He won. And that really upset me because I could have made a bundle to start the day on this on Tiger Coed. So anyway, the third race is gone. Now the way they run them is there's a half hour betting period between each race. Now the object of this is it gives you A, it gives you plenty of time to bet if you plan to bet. And B, if you don't plan to bet, eventually the tension will get you and you'll have to bet. You stand there for half an hour saying, no, I'm staying out of this race. I'm definitely not in this race. I'm staying out. Staying completely out of the race. And all these guys going, number two, number two, listen, Joe the Greek dropped a bundle on number three. Hey, Woodrow was a favorite in this one. And you sit there going, no, 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 hey, listen, this isn't the one I want to stay out of. This is the one I want to be right there where Joe the Greek is. So, so you, you finally, you know, the tension gets to you and you run down a little $2 window. So we're about 15 minutes into the betting period. 
In other words, it's about 15 minutes till post time. Notice all the jargon I've picked up. Post time. Closest thing I ever knew to post time was when the guy went, there goes the bunny. Yeah, you ever been to a dog race? That's my kind of race, boy. Greyhounds, man, out of sight. So anyway, I figured, you know, like I fully expected to see, you know how in a dog race they have a little bunny, an electronic bunny that runs around in the dog chair. I fully expected them to see like a, an electronic bale of hay or something running around for the horses to chase, but apparently it doesn't work that way. So I decide, okay, I look at the first, or the third race was my first race, and I look at the bulletin, the bulletin likes number two. Well, now like an idiot, I immediately go in and bet number two to win, which is a bad mistake because if you bet them to show... In other words, if you bet that the horse will come in in third place, you get money if the horse comes in either first, second, or third. If you bet him to come in second, you get money if he comes in first or second. And if you bet win, you get money only if he wins. So the obvious thing to do is bet show, unless you're really sure. And of course, I don't know anything about it. So I trounce up to the $2 window, right? And I've, I'm all set for number three, whose name was... Uh, I don't know, Pansy's Pride rings a bell. I think that was his name. So now I go up. Now this guy is this guy is a hardened ticket puncher outer. This guy has been with Garden State for the last 150 years, right? He came with the plumbing. He he has an easement through Garden State. That's how long he's been there. And he's sitting there and he, and these guys are going up, you know, and I and I hear these this very quick conversation, but I can't make out any of the words. The guy just sort of goes up and goes, and the ticket taker goes, and this little ticket comes out, and this little arm comes out and grabs the money. So I get up there. Now, I'm, I'm all set with about 15 sentences to give this guy. Uh, excuse me, sir, but I would very much like to place a $2 wager on, uh, on uh, Pansy's Pride in the upcoming race. Would that be possible? And the guy's sitting here with his hand poised over the button, looking up at me, looking down at the button, looking up at me. What, 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 what do you want, buddy? What do you want from me? Well, I want to make a $2 bet. What number? What Say the number. Well, it's the, it's the third race. I don't care about the race. Stop. Wait. I don't want to know the race. I don't want to know the name. I don't want to know the, num the number or amount of your bet. I want to know the number of the horse. That's all. And the number of tickets you want. Now, do you think you can manage that? Well, I allowed is how I could probably manage that. And I looked in my little program and saw that Pansy's Pride was number two. So I said, number two, and I want one. He said, no, you don't have to say number. Let me give you a little education, kid. Now, he's taking me aside here. Guy's behind me going, hey, come on, what's holding up the line? I've got a million dollars here to bet. I've got a hot one. As he takes me aside and he says, now look, when you go up to the window, what you do is you say the number on a horse that you're betting on, and then you say the second number, which is the number of tickets you want. So in other words, if you want one ticket on number two, you say two, one. Or you, you say number two and you display two dollars. Now you understand that? Repeat after me. Two, one. And I'm going, two, one. Okay, now you got it. Now, which horse do you want to bet on? Two, one. One, and I hand over my two dollars, and and this machine, this monster pseudo crypto cash register machine belches out this little ticketron ticket. And it's it's if you've ever been to a racetrack, they're marvelous little things. They're printed on sort of coarse paper by a company called American Totalizator. And uh, this is a win ticket, and it stamps the number of the, of the horse that you want, and it stamps the race and the date and everything else. And up at the top, it stamps $2. Now, I've gone to the $2 win window like an idiot. So now I'm all set. Now I, I own a piece of the race, right? It's like watching the stock market when you've got one share of AT&T. 
See, so I've gone out, I'm out there, and I'm rooting for Pansy's pride all the way, and I'm, I'm a nut, see. Now, what I do is I look, I look and see how everybody else is rooting. And during the betting periods, everybody's very, very quiet. Everybody's just studying the racing form, see, so I get no clue as to, as to what I'm expected to do here. Everybody's just sort of sitting around going, oh, number two, these hushed conversations. Then they come to post time, Bring the little bell goes on, and the guy up in the booth starts going, and coming around the front, and bringing up the rearest bands, he's and this guy's going a mile a minute, like the guy, remember Lucky Speed Riggs, who used to do the tobacco auctioneering bit for Lucky Strike, old American, remember that? This guy is quicker. This guy, his tongue is like in four pieces, so that one is forming the next word, while another one is doing the word he's saying. See, and he's going, and coming around the front, and it's Batman, John Spencer in the lead. And then he'd always pause and he'd say, and bringing up the rear is Pansy's Pride. So I'm sitting there with my $2 ticket going, come on, you bum. I figured, you know, that's what you yell in baseball. I've got to be close enough, right? Come on, horse. Glue factory, you bum. And everybody else is going wild. And they're all screaming and yelling. Well, to make a long story short with regard to this race, Pansy's Pride finished third. She was in the money, but like an idiot, I bet a win ticket. Well, that convinced me. See, it suddenly dawned on me that you get money. If you, if you bet show, you get money if they place a win. So I go back and I bet show from then on. Well, so the, the next race comes up and I bet show and I win and then the next one comes up. Now I'm, now I'm starting to get conservative. See, I'm, I'm getting the hang of it and I'm starting to get conservative and I'm starting to cover my bets. See, so I'll make a show bet on the favorite and then I'll make another bet, a show bet on another horse in the race to cover myself, you know. Now I'm starting to lose because, you know, the one horse will come in and pay like 2.20 and then I'll, so I'll be out 4 bucks and I win 20 cents, so I'm out 3.80. So that's a bad thing to do. You've got to bet the ranch. That's the only way to do it, I'm convinced. So the St. John system for beating Garden State. I'm going to take a squad of goons down there someday with abacai, abacuses, you know, right, and, and calculators. I'm going to get all of the mathematical and engineer types from out of this U. We're going to go down in a squadron and sit there and figure out what are the odds, what are the odds, you know. M magnificent, huge computer board there in the, in the middle of the thing, you know, figuring out. So it went on and on, and I was staying roughly about even, so I started to lose interest in the race, and I started to watch the people. And the people who go to racetracks are really an incredible lot. I mean, like, if you've ever seen a racetrack movie, if you've ever seen a movie about the races, that's true. Yeah, that's the way it is. Whatever you've heard about the racetrack people, it's true. These are incredible guys. Like, they're lying on the concrete, reading, looking up, reading the racing form. Right. Then there's they're, they're the guys, you know, who, who just, you know, are, are wearing, the, wearing the, the golf shirt and the, and the, the suit. And they're looking down at the racing form, and, and they're puzzling over, and they're figuring odds on the side, you know. And these guys are making a living at this. They're there every day, because this was like a, a Wednesday afternoon, you know. People should be working. Normal people are working. Not these people. These people are playing horses. But all of the people, all of the people at this, at this racetrack had one thing in common. They had this grim look, this icy hungry look in their eyes, that something-for-nothing look. There's a demon inside every one of us. There's a little man inside every one of us. And every once in a while, he breaks out. And that little man delights in a lot of strange things. 
He likes something for nothing. He likes fun at other people's expense. And you get to thinking, you know, about that, about the American dream and what's happened to it. And, and, and how it is that, that normal people, even the most normal people, even the man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night, can become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Maria Ospenskaya to Lon Chaney Jr. in The Wolfman. But it's true. Even the man who's pure in heart can become a real, real, you know the word. <laughs> I don't think I have to spell it out for you, friends. We're a sophisticated enough group. It's an old service expression. I don't think I have to telegraph it. So I got to thinking, what is it? What creates this little man? Surely, surely a mere youth does not have this same little man or little youth, depending on whether it grows. I probably did, but then I sprung fully grown from the head of Zeus. That's something altogether different. So in thinking about this, I began to realize that like everything else that we get, it's passed on from generation to generation. We're brought up this way. The first thing a child learns is cynicism. That very first day when you send in an Ovaltine cap, expecting to get... I remember one of the great tragedies of my life was Captain Midnight had a, had a, a thing that he advertised on every show and in, in magazines and everything else, which was uh, a walkie-talkie thing. And one of your, your friend had one and you had one, and you could say vital things to each other like, uh, what do you want to do? So I'm all up for this, and it was like a quarter and an Ovaltine inner seal. Always the inner seal. So I drink Ovaltine, and that stuff is really hideous, and I'm down, and it's ugh, and it all... Ovaltine never dissolved. It just sat there in these horrible chunks. Like, every time I see ads for this new freeze-dried coffee, I quiver. Because that's exactly what Ovaltine looked like, even when it was dissolved. This stuff was made out of pure magnesium. And it would just, it would either explode instantly on contact with the water, or it would just sort of sit there and float. It was really terrible stuff. Maybe they've refined it, you know, maybe it's good now, but I, I won't go near it. So I suffered through like months of Ovaltine, because this stuff is super concentrated, you know, and one little half teaspoon in an entire gallon of milk, and that's enough. So I suffered through Ovaltine meal after Ovaltine meal, and I sent in my stupid little cap liner for this walkie-talkie figuring it's going to be, you know, like, if you remember Captain Midnight, you remember they had the Secret Squadron. Speaking of Secret Squadrons, this is WPRB in Princeton. And the Secrets, every member of the Secret Squadron had a little pocket communicator, which, and when trouble broke out, he opened up his little pocket communicator and went, SQ-29 to SQ-1, and SQ-1 would go, yes, that'll be Harry Barnes of Passaic, New Jersey. Yes, Harry, what seems to be the trouble up in your neck of the woods? Ha, ha, ha. And, and Harry would say, they're robbing the Passaic National Bank. And Captain Midnight would turn around and go, warm up the silver dart, Icky. And they're off, and they swoop down on the National Bank, and they get the robbers, and that's great. So I'm all set for this. I sit in my Ovaltine cap, and I got back a pair of little plastic frying pans. And you have to attach a string between them. See, they, they never showed you the string in any of the ads or in any of the, in any of the television stuff. There's string there. 
so you could stand in the basement with your father at one end of the basement and with you at the other end of the basement looking at each other and go, Wow, how's the weather over there? Well, the weather here is pretty good. I mean, you might as well not be using the things. You can't put them around corners because when you put them around, the stream's got to be taut. And if you taut it around the corner, all the vibration is gone and there's nothing. You know, the paneling on the side of the house, here's what you're saying, but that's about it. That's the kind of thing that, that, that this little man feeds on. Early cynicism. And the next big blow is when you, is when you want something really great. You know, you're, you're out of the stage of sinning in box tops now. And now you're sending away, or you're, you're, you're buying things in department stores. And you go up, you know, and something is really great, looks really great in the, in the, in the thing, like a, this great plane. Or like even the advertisements on television. The advertising on television says, look at the X-15 model jet. And it shows this plane going whoosh, and there are clouds behind it. And there's a little guy who looks remarkably like every kid on your block sitting at the controls going, and loving it. And it's only $438. And your old man's paycheck is only $438. You must get him to buy this for you. So you go to the old man and you say, Dad, Dad, this is it. I'll never ask for anything else again. How many times do you use that line? I'll never ask you for anything else again. If you'll just get me an X-15, somehow I'll be content for the rest of my life. When I'm 53 years old, sitting in a law office with nothing to do, I'll pull out my X-15. So Dad finally gives in after a whole lot of will-sees and maybes. If you're very, very good, and they always have to at least try and attempt a, a little leverage, and you get the plane. And you get out the instruction booklet and you put the thing together, which is a task in itself. You know, put Brad X into tab P4 and bend. And the thing breaks. And then send to Aurora Plastics in Skokie for a whole new thing and it'll cost you $100 million. So you put the thing together, right? Now you got the instruction sheet out. The instruction sheet is mammoth. And now on the back, it's instructions for flying, right? This is right after the section on troubleshooting. You get to the, this is how, what, what happens. You know, this is what you do with your toy. Why, the X-15 zooms, there's a picture of a kid, and, and it's zooming along. And way down at the bottom, in little tiny type, it says those magic words. Not a flying toy. It just sits there. If you're real lucky, and I mean real lucky, if you push it along the floor, it will fizz. It will, it will make little flywheel-like noises and spurt sparks. Remember Spurt Sparks? He used to do Miss America pageant for many years. I couldn't resist that. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, that's it. So you play with it for about one half of a day, and that's, and that's the schmear. That's the whole thing, this thing that you've, you've pined for. And the little man chalks up another one. As that mean streak in the, in the innocent child begins to grow. Now you get into grade school. Grade school is the greatest single course for juvenile delinquents in the world. It was in grade school that I first learned that somebody else in pain can be tremendously funny. The sight of someone suffering can be hilarious. <laughs> and the little man in the back is sharpening the pencil for another one. <laughs> now you're starting to get catalogs. 
you're starting to get novelty catalogs and you're starting to shop in novelty stores for that big practical joke. And you're starting to you're starting to look for things with the maximum amount of hurting power. See? Now this is this is not this is not new to our generation. I went down to the to a store here the other day and I picked up the 1929 Johnson Smith and Company catalog. Now I don't know whether you're familiar with Johnson Smith. But Johnson Smith is the world's largest seller of mayhem, packaged in all the kinds of forms you want. And this is 1929, they put this catalog out. And things haven't changed substantially. Now listen to this. Rubber eggs for 15 cents. They look so real they'd fool even an experienced hen. And one doesn't have to be fresh from the country to bite either. Well made of sponge rubber painted white to resemble a genuine egg. Rubber chocolates, 25 cents. Illusion, infallible, provokes howls of laughter every time these tempting looking assorted chocolates are served with real candies. Even when you know they fool you, these chocolates are made of sponge rubber, rubber nuts, rubber pretzels, rubber donuts, rubber hot dogs, rubber bananas, rubber cigarettes. Now, it's Central Park West on the third floor of a really posh apartment house. The hostess is having a few exclusive friends over for a little gathering. This is only the cream of the cream. The Rockefellers are there. Right? The Pratt Whitney's are there. The Smythe Chemworths are there. And they're all sitting there in their little wing collars and their bow ties and their formals. And they're sitting around discussing how Kierkegaard never matured. And the hostess comes out with a dainty little tray of hors d'oeuvres. And cleverly mixed in are rubber canapes. 45 cents a dozen from Johnson Smith. Imagine the howls of laughter as Uncle Ned cut you out of his will. <laughs> Imagine the howls of laughter as John Dillinger shoots you, preserving him a rubber thing. <laughs> Canape, right? Little rubber caviar. What kind of mind dreams this up? And there, there's better stuff in here. Listen, this is mild. This is just this is just the beginning. At the beginning of the catalog to get you kind of uh, to get you kind of ready. Now, imagine the looks on everybody's face if you serve those rubber candies wearing the gigantic ears. Character actors, comic singers, and masquerade will find these enormous ears cause no end of fun. Now, there's, there's class. There's, there's real class for you. Or how about if you come in serving rubber canapes, wearing enormous ears, and wearing on the front of your face the gigantic vibrating eye spurting itching powder from both both arms. Have you ever run into an itching powder nut? They're deadly. They're deadly people. You don't want you just want to stay completely away from these kind of people. People who today send in for things from catalogs like this should be put away.
there is no doubt in my mind there should be a home for, for people who, who buy like practical joke things. Now these are getting really vicious. Like there's a device in here that you can put on a water faucet so that when the guy turns the water faucet on, it sprays him, totally ruining his $300 Brooks Brothers suit. Now that'll have him. That's boffo. That's total boffo. That'll, that packed him in Poughkeepsie. That'll just, that, that just wowed him in Erie. And it'll guarantee to raise a laugh at, at, at your social facility party or whatever. And it's guaranteed, of course, that she'll never be back. But, you know, once is enough, right? And they're selling, they also sell, one of, the, one of the really amazing things about this catalog is that there is a tremendous section devoted to the sale of handguns, which seems to indicate to me that the kind of people who buy practical jokes better buy a handgun just in case. Right, in case uh, Madame, Madame Pompadour is not quite the lady that she, you thought she was, and she pulls out a derringer and plugs you in the belly when you try a slip of her rubber chocolate, you better have a little derringer handy to show her who is boss. And there are police clubs in here and handcuffs, you know, for the more, the more physical types who merely want to restrain their victims once they're irate, rather than just simply kill them on the spot. Perfume bombs. <laughs> Rubber smoke blower, jumping sore finger joke. You can imagine what these things are like. Here's a really interesting thing. Enameled flag buttons. I'll let you think about that. The bubbler outfits, marvelous pixie plants. Gee whiz, a new and exciting parlor game, guaranteed to raise laughs. Because there's one guy who doesn't know. You ever play those games? where everybody in the room knows what the joke is, but the, there's one guy who doesn't, right? I know a really great joke that starts out, do you know that you can't do a sit-up with a towel over your eyes? Sometime when, when we're on a, a band in Argentina somewhere, I'll explain that one to you. <laughs> Sometime when, when Nicholas Johnson and company aren't likely to be monitoring us. How you doing tonight, Nick, by the way, down there at your testing station? He records all our broadcasts, hoping to find some way to throw me off the air. There's got to be a way. He'll find it eventually. The Enchanted Card Box, just incredible stuff. Animated Spider, just beautiful stuff that, that you can take. Gigantic Ears, we talked about. Squeaking Shoes, you ever have one of those? I had one of those. thing you put in your shoe to make them squeak. <laughs> people, people spend millions of dollars every year to buy shoes that don't squeak and then spend equally much buying little things to put in their shoes to make them squeak. Ah, be the life of any party with squeaking shoes. <laughs> Why don't they think about that when their shoes need resoling? The, the human mind doesn't work that way. It's got to be a phony device, right? And, of course, there are thousands, just myriad number of things that squirt, things that you wear on your lapel and with a little bulb in the pocket right and whoosh. Imagine a surprised look of the police officer as he bends over to look at your ID. and your ID, the mouth and the picture of your ID squirts at him. Why, it'll, they'll laugh all over the jail as they're taking you away and putting you on the gallows. They'll laugh. <laughs> What kind of perverted mind comes up with this sort of thing? It's really incredible. And, of course, they have, they've got all kinds of other stuff, you know, not just a practical joke. But they made, they made their reputation in practical jokes. Jumping fleas, doggy cigarette dispenser, <laughs> joke bugs, joke warts. Now there's a panic. Walk into your next party wearing about 15 warts. How many thousands of millions of dollars are spent every year on plastic surgery to remove warts only so that the guy can go down to the corner store and buy a rubber wart to wear on his nose. Listen to this. These imitation warts have a gummy substance on the reverse side so they are readily attached to any part of the flesh all over your body. 
Fix one onto the end of your nose or on the back of your back and one of your fingers and you will soon be the object of sympathetic inquiries. Hey, Charlie, where'd you get all them warts all of a sudden? Boy, I never seen anything so ugly in my life. Get a lot of Charlie over here with the warts. The warts are quite natural looking. Oh, oh, oh. Listen to this. The wart, I better start auditioning this material before I start bringing it out. The warts are quite natural looking with two or three hairs sticking out of each <laughs> to make the illusion still more perfect. Oh! <laughs> First time in the history of radio, friends, that a man on the air actually grossed himself out. <laughs> Mark this down on your calendars. That is easily the grossest thing I have ever heard of. And it's 10 cents, joke warts, per package. Or you can buy 12 packages for 75 cents in, in case, you know, you want to make a real hit and have a whole lot of warts all over yourself. Walk into the party with the amazing vibrating eye with warts all over it, you know. Oh, that's a, that's, that's a great concept. <laughs> oh, I don't believe that. Just, just what everybody should have. Joke eye bandage. Camel cigarette box with four mice. Now, there's a handy device. No one should be without that. So when the, the next guy that comes along and wants to borrow a cigarette, about 14 mice jump out and eat him. It's a riot. I'll use it on Flip Connell down at the club. Next chance I get, I'll, I'll, I'm going to send in for that. Maybe they're not making it anymore. So since this was in 1929, they may not, uh, it may not exactly be in their stock. They're still around. Johnson & Smith are now in Detroit. But they're still selling this stuff. I mean, I haven't seen a catalog of theirs lately. I don't know whether they're still selling warts. But uh, what, what, a, what a great, what a dubious concept, you know. Mr. Johnson and Mr. Smith, known as the wart magnets, right? Guys who made millions selling rubber warts. Exploding jewelry case, right? And then there are a vast number of things that involve people opening things up and having snakes jump out at them, right? Like the classic one I had was Adam's peanut brittle. And it was a little orange can that had about four, four spring snakes in it. And you'd say, here, care for some peanut brittle? And the guy'd go, Chuck! and the snakes would all go, Chuck! and you go, ah, 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 ah. boy, did you look stupid. And the guy would kick you, and he'd leave, and he'd never be your friend again. But you got to laugh out of it, see? The marvelous exploding cigar box, guaranteed to injure people for a fully 10 feet around. Rubber sausage. <laughs> they serve those down at Howard Johnson's. That's nothing new. They've been doing that for years and charging more for them. Magic egg cup. Oh, there's just all kinds. The eternal snake. <laughs> we have one of those. His name is Tom Peff. But that's a whole other story altogether. The enchanted carp. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in here that is just, you know, rubber plants, rubber matches. Uh, I mean, this is just incredible. All the kinds of things to use to, uh, to totally destroy your friends. That's the same thing behind Monopoly, right? The desire to wipe your friends out. The desire to see your friends squirming while you put the screws to him with your 16 hotels on boardwalk. Pay. But I haven't got any money. Pay. Well, why don't you evict me? I'm waiting for a snowy day. Right? The Monopoly syndrome is something we've talked about before. And it's all part of it, friends. It's all part of this evil little guy. This mean streak that's in every single one of us. You people out there sitting there saying, oh, I don't know who he's talking about. Why, there's, there's, I'm not like that at all. I'm, there's not a mean streak in me. Yeah. You laughed at Charlie Chaplin, didn't you? Charlie Chaplin had it right on the nose. 
the people who did that kind of comedy knew that when you take a pratfall and look like you're in pain, it is uproariously funny. It's, it's wildly funny to see somebody else hurt. A box of good sport, rubber sport cigarettes, a joke everybody enjoys. Have a cigarette, then the fun commences. Fun commences when he tries to light it, I suppose. Place smells like the Goodyear plant. <laughs> really quickly, and the neighbors figure you're making 50 bucks extra a week selling uh, tires or something. Rubber nail, rubber coat hanger. There's one, there's one particular piece in here that, uh, that, that somehow escaped me. It's, a, it's the head of a nail. It's like about a quarter or a half an inch of the head of a nail. And then it stops flat. And underneath it, there's a little pin. And what you do with this is you stick it into people's furniture so that it looks like somebody has driven a nail through their best chair. And that, of course, is immediately uproarious. What's not so uproarious is the fact that when you take it out, there's still a pinhole there. And you've ruined her best 19th century chintz piece. And she's going to not only never let you in her house again, but very probably sue you for most of what you're worth. And it's all for 15 cents out of the Johnson & Smith catalog, my friends. This is, this is the kind of... The kind of streak that's in everybody, that streak of, of real slobbiness. Oh, boy. And, of course, no, no listing of this kind of mind, this kind of aura, this little man with the waxed mustache that sits in the brain of every one of us. No discussion of him could be complete without the classic. This is item number 2953, and it sells for a trivial 25 cents. The first time it appeared in the catalog, very few people suspected it would attain the kind of timeless significance that it has attained. Even today, you can hear references to its unfailing success at getting a laugh, at achieving that, that measure of hilarity and bringing a fantastic amount of cringing embarrassment to its victims. It is a legend, my friends, in its own time. There are few people alive who have never heard of this, and remarkably enough, there are also few people who have ever actually seen one. It is called the whoopee cushion. And that says it all, friends. That's it in a package. The whoopee cushion, or poo-poo cushion, as it is sometimes called, is made of rubber. It is inflated in much the same manner as an ordinary rubber balloon and then placed on a chair. When the victim unsuspectingly sits on the cushion, it gives forth noises that can better be imagined than described. The accompanying illustration, of course, leaves nothing to the imagination. Well, I suppose that at the annual meeting of the Great Stuffed Porcupine Lodge in Des Moines, just after Miss Sylvia comes out and does her well-acclaimed exotic dance, interpretive dance, after old Harry and old George and old Weird Art who spent the war at Fort Dix, 
After all of these clowns get good and booze, and after all the guys who might hurt you are either too drunk, too tired, too asleep, or too far gone, placing a whoopee cushion under someone who is a good deal shorter than you are, and certainly less muscular, might be a real fun thing to do. But it's not the kind of thing you do at Lincoln Center. It's not the kind of thing you do at the Metropolitan Opera, right? When Madame Vanderbilt is going to her box seat and sits down on a whoopee cushion. That's not the kind of thing you do in, in, in society like that. Yet the whoopee cushion is, is a legend. It's something that everybody has heard of and a lot of people use. Have you ever had a practical joke played on you? Have you ever had a real practical joke played on you? It's miserable. It's the most rotten thing in the world because not only are you suffering the immediate embarrassment of, of the joke, but you're all, you also suffer the fact that somebody has put one over on you and everybody is sitting there going, ah, 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 boy, are you an idiot. Uh, I guess you look pretty stupid. Ah, ah, ah. Now, for those of you who have graduated beyond sneezing powder and itching powder and whoopee cushions, there are far more esoteric things to be had. Stink bombs for only a dime. Also referred to as, I might add, anarchist bombs. Explosive matches. Spitfire. A small glass vial containing a quantity of chemical tablets that look harmless enough. However, when the moisture is applied, such as a drop of water, the tablet bursts into flames, spitting and sputtering fire. That's probably just pure magnesium, or whatever it is, that stuff that, that lights. Sore finger spiraling joke, safety toy torpedo, sun wheels, flitter fountain, torches. Torch your neighbor's house tomorrow, guaranteed to bring laughs. For only $2.95, you too can have a live alligator. Imagine a surprised look on your friends' faces as they're suddenly pulled under the surface of the Happy Day swimming pool, never to come up again. A genuine laugh riot. Be the first kid on your block to own an atomic bomb. Be the first kid on your block to be the last kid on your block. <laughs> That's where it all comes from. You were a kid. We were all kids, and we ordered this kind of stuff. I don't think there has ever been a kid in creation that hasn't used something like this at some time, or at least tried to make his own. You know, maybe the, maybe the attempt wasn't successful to make that stink bomb down in the basement with the Gilbert chemistry set, because the Gilbert chemistry set never gave you any chemicals that could really do anything. They always gave you chemicals like strips of wood. Right? That was number 63, strips of wood. That's true. If you had a Gilbert chemistry set, you'll remember that. Balsa wood or something like sandalwood. They never gave you anything really good like acid, you know, like, like Dr. Frankenstein always used. So you could sit down in the basement and eat away the foundation of the house. Good things they never gave you. But everybody, whether they had a chemistry set and tried to put together stink bombs or whether they were ordering ready-made things, or whether they were just playing, just dipping Aunt Sally's pigtails into the into the... Inkwell, 
Everybody did this kind of thing, and it really got started in the early formative years in first and second grade. I had a first grade teacher who was hell on wheels. This woman was a living terror. And she got so upset at one kid in the class. This is true. She got so upset at one kid in the class who was so bad with this stuff. Every day he'd come in with a new thing like, like the joke ink splot. One of the, one, of the, one of the most illustrative things about what I'm talking about, the strange tracks a mind's man can go to, is it's a, it costs you like a quarter or 50 cents in any novelty store. And it is a perfect replica of what you will see on any floor where there has been heavy drinking the night before. Now, I think you understand what I'm talking about. And, and it says, for really good effect, sprinkle water on it. What kind of people buy this stuff? All right, so this guy, this kid in first grade is buying all this stuff. And he's putting it on the floor and he's buying ink splotches. He's buying ink splotches and putting them on the desk and he's buying the, the, the worm that, that jumps out of the apple and giving it to the, This woman got so angry at this guy that she took a jump rope and tied him to a chair, put scotch tape across his mouth, and one by one played on him every practical joke he had used. The guy is still shell-shocked. A shell-shocked first grader is a terrifying thing to see. But he never used him again. He was cured early. He took the cure. He dried out. He went cold turkey. Then there are the startling, swirling, oozing, throbbing masses of the rest of us who never got that chance. And in the back of every one of our minds, that little man sits at a little roll-top desk and a high stool. And his wax mustache is shaded from the carbon arc lamp of truth by a green eyeshade. And he's got a quill pen in his hand. And he's marking down the times. And when the times don't come frequently enough, he walks about two steps over to a pot-bellied stove. And he plays with the coals inside and he punches them and he pokes them and they get hotter. And then they get burning hot. And you start leafing through the Johnson Smith catalog. You start looking longingly at the pigtails on the girl in front of you. You start going to the racetrack. It'll happen to you. Maybe when you least expect it. It will happen. Goodbye, my friends. WPRB Princeton.